When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Father, as we look at these words of your Son one more time tonight, I pray that one more time you would come and help us, feed us on the good food of your Word, and prepare us for the challenges that are ahead if we choose to follow Jesus and to walk uprightly. We ask in his name. Amen. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time she comes home from the house church meeting, from studying God's word, from singing his praise, from fellowshipping with her brothers and sisters in Christ, every time she comes home from the kind of gathering that we are enjoying just now, her husband beats her. And one time he beat her with a hammer. That's the story we heard from Central Asia a week ago in one of our Lottie Moon videos And that is the hard reality of the passage that is before us tonight. Jesus does not promise his people heaven on earth, at least not now. No, in the world, he said, you have tribulation, John 16, 33. And part of that tribulation, according to our text this evening, is that people will insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because... Of Jesus, and sometimes they may even beat you with a hammer. And one of the things that we must do with that reality, surely, is to be certain that we don't bury our heads in the sand and forget that there are Christians tonight who are suffering excruciatingly because of their faith in Jesus. Some of them may be at the blunt end of a hammer, some of them sleeping on a cold prison floor. Some of them disowned by their families, some of them perhaps even being martyred right now in 2015 during Christmas. Some of you get the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter in the mail, and if you don't, perhaps you should. You can sign up for it for free at their website. And I'll never forget the letter to the editor that I read some time ago in which the correspondent 
in just a sentence or two, said something to this effect, stop deceiving people with your newsletter. Christians aren't any longer being martyred for their faith. Now, that's a bold and obnoxious claim, isn't it? To say that stories of Christians being killed for their faith in the 21st century are all a hoax. That's a tall claim indeed and one that ought to grieve us when we hear it. But it occurs to me that if I'm not careful and if you're not careful, though we would never deny that some of our brothers and sisters suffer painfully for their faith, yet if we're not careful, we can still go for weeks, months, maybe even years, living as though persecution really were a thing of the past, forgetting that women are being beaten for Jesus Christ and that men are losing their jobs and that children are sometimes losing their parents because they love and follow Jesus. And so an initial clarion call tonight when we read these verses about those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, a first point of application should be, in the words of Hebrews 13.3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. In other words, don't forget to pray and don't fail to send relief to your Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith. And again, I'd point you to the voice of the martyrs as a good resource for doing both of those things, praying and relieving. I hope that I'll be more faithful in the new year that is ahead in leading my family to remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated for the sake of Jesus. And maybe you can ask me in a few weeks how I've done in that regard. That's one point of departure this evening, that we read Jesus' words regarding persecution and that we think about that woman and her husband, and the hammer, and the hundreds of other stories like hers, and that we do something about it in prayer and in generosity. So let's be more faithful than ever in these regards in the year 2016, and in the final 15 days before this year's end. But then, having thought about this woman from Central Asia and the hundreds of other Christians like her whose faces we sometimes see in the magazine or in a video, I want us to guard against some errors, some wrong tracks we might go down when our thinking about persecution is focused primarily on brutal stories that we read about so many miles away. Indeed, I think Jesus' words this evening here in verses 10 through 12 correct three misconceptions about persecution that we may have, two of which we may wrongly adopt, partially at least, because we do read so many horror stories from overseas, and then the third of which misconceptions is probably just natural to us as fallen creatures. So think that out with me tonight. Three misconceptions regarding persecution corrected by this eighth and final beatitude from the lips of God's own suffering servant. And misconception number one is this, that persecution is out there somewhere. That's the first misconception that this passage corrects, the idea that persecution is out there somewhere. If we're not careful, that's how we can begin to think, isn't it? The persecution of Christians takes place, we may tell ourselves, in Muslim contexts or under communist regimes and in all sorts of other foreign and far-off places, but not right here in Main Street, USA. Now, it is true that in this current window of history, our brothers and sisters in Morocco and China and Syria 
and Central Asia and such like places do have it on the whole much more difficult than we do. And it's also true, as someone has said, maybe it was John Piper, that we Western Christians have for a long time lived in a very unusual bubble. We're living in a time and place where the name of Jesus has been more palatable to the culture than in any other time and place in the history of the world. But that's an abnormal bubble. Our Western tolerance for Christianity is not the usual. It's been an extraordinary exception to the rule of persecution. And that window of toleration, I hope you have eyes to see, is closing rapidly. And I want to say to you tonight, based on our text, that biblically, that's okay. Biblically, that's not abnormal. We shouldn't be surprised to read of lawsuits brought against American Christians who are simply trying to obey the word of God when it comes to something like basic sexual ethics. What would be abnormal is if that never happened. And I'm saying to you that our text tonight demonstrates this, that it demonstrates that persecution is normal for the Christian. How so? Well, notice a couple of things here in these verses. First of all, observe in verse 11 that Jesus does not say, blessed are you if people insult you and persecute you. But he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. He doesn't, in other words, pose persecution as a possibility, but as a foregone conclusion. Not as an if, but as a when. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Now, someone may say, well, that's because Jesus is speaking, verse 1, to his disciples. He said these things to his disciples, to Matthew, James, and John, and Peter, and the rest. And of course, they were going to suffer for him. And so he speaks to them with a when and not an if. But does that really apply to all Christians? And you'll notice Verse 1, his disciples came to him, and then in verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Well, the logic that Jesus is mainly talking to his disciples here, his 12 disciples, might hold water that the definite nature of persecution was meant for the 12 disciples only. That kind of thinking might have some merit to it if we are willing to say that the rest of this Sermon on the Mount is only for the 12 disciples. But that's not the case, is it? The sermon wasn't just meant for the twelve, but for every disciple of Jesus, for all who have been called by his grace. Indeed, we learn at the end of the sermon that there were many more than just the twelve listening that day. And so I conclude that this sermon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 inclusive, was meant for all Christians. And to all Christians, then Jesus speaks of persecution here in verse 11 in terms of when, not if. And so we've misapprehended the situation if we think of persecution as something that is out there somewhere. And then another reason we know we've misunderstood if we think that way is by comparing verses 3 through 9, which we've seen in recent weeks, with verses 10 through 12, which we're looking at now. There is a striking difference between this final beatitude and the seven that have preceded it, and I wonder if you've ever noticed it before. Did you ever notice that while the other seven Beatitudes describe actions and character traits that we ourselves demonstrate and do, 
This final beatitude is actually a description of something that happens to us. Just take a look at verses 3 through 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, and so on. Those are all traits and behaviors that have to do with our own attitudes and our own actions, correct? But then in verses 10 through 12, we're now talking about the attitudes and actions of other people done toward us, and that's a significant difference. And yet it's interesting to know that Jesus places verses 10, and 10, 11, and 12, that which happens to us, right here in the same list as verses 3 through 9, that which we do and live ourselves, as though they're all in one category. And what do we have in verses 3 through 9? Well, what we have is simply a list of those qualities that ought to be normal and expected in the lives of his followers. We don't have some Christians who are supposed to be poor in spirit and others who are supposed to be proud, do we? We don't have some Christians who should mourn for their sins and others who really don't have to worry about it. And on and on we could go. These are the normal and expected things in the life of the believer. And then, although being persecuted is in one way very different from all these other qualities that we must cultivate, Jesus still places it in the same list of qualities that ought to be normal and expected in the lives of his followers. In other words, the inclusion of suffering persecution alongside all these other basic Christian qualities fills us in that Jesus thought of it in the same class as a basic part of the Christian life. Suffering for Jesus is not a reality that exists only out there somewhere. No. As Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. And that includes those living in this Western bubble of the last few hundred years. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you determine to walk in righteousness here in verse 10, if you really know and follow Jesus, well then some people, verse 11, will not like you because of him. That's just the way it is. And so while we must be keenly aware of our brothers and sisters in the world tonight who are suffering far more severely than we are, we must also awaken to the reality that persecution is not just out there somewhere. Sometimes we may think it is because we read the horror stories or just because, happily, we're not self-conscious about our own little sufferings for Christ. And both of those are at least admirable reasons for us to misapprehend. But maybe sometimes, too, we may not be as aware of persecution on the home front because we're not living righteously enough to draw anyone's ire or perhaps we are not Jesus specific enough to really offend anyone those are the two causes of persecution in verses 10 through 12 are they not first of all righteousness verse 10 blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness doing that which is right standing for that which is right not obnoxiously of course not without the poverty of spirit and the gentleness and the mercy that Jesus has just finished commending, but ever how softly we may walk if we're committed to doing what is right, if we're people of integrity in business, if we refuse to listen to the off-color jokes at work, if we choose to raise our children differently than the world, if sexual purity is of paramount importance to us, if the things of God are more important than our sports and entertainment, some people, yes, will be drawn to us and to our Jesus. 
And other people will scoff and sometimes make fun and sometimes overlook us, quote-unquote, for a promotion. And if they think they have something to lose by our Christian commitments, then they may get angry as well. This kind of thing will happen if we behave righteously and if we truly live for Jesus. On the other hand, if we just go with the flow, if we pretty much fall in line with our classmates, if we love all the same banal things that our co-workers love, if we look just like our neighbors, then in spite of the fact that we go to church, we'll probably get along okay with our fellows, simply choosing to displease God rather than man. Righteousness. And then what about the name of Jesus? It's interesting, I'm sure you've noticed this, that even in our hypersensitive world, one can still sometimes get away with talking about God, generally, or the Lord, or the Creator, non-specifically. Even that doesn't often fly anymore, but the more specific you get, the less it flies. In other words, it's one thing for people that know you are religious. It's one thing for people to know you go to church. It's one thing for people to hear you talk in general terms about God, but do they know you as a Jesus man, a Jesus woman, a Jesus boy or girl? Do they know that your God is not the God of the Muslims, is not the generic God that people call out to when they're in trouble and no time else, but that your God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do they know that you're religious or do they know that Christ is king in your life? Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you need to be obnoxious about making people know that Christ is king. There is a way that you can speak of Jesus in such a pushy, proud, loud-mouthed way that people will begin to tire of you, not of Jesus. But when you have occasion to speak of your faith humbly, when you have occasion to say a word in season, is it a word or a testimony about Jesus? Persecution comes, he says in verse 11, because of me and because of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us back to our main point, which is that if we are living righteously, if we truly are Jesus people, well then persecution won't always be something that's out there. But very often the rain clouds of insult and difficulty and false accusation will come and settle in right over our own roofs. So that's the first misconception that does not stand up against the truth of this passage. We may not say it in so many words, but sometimes we live as though persecution is out there somewhere. Not so. But then there's a second misconception that we might not say in so many words either, but that we often seem to think And it's one that we should debunk from this passage as well. Namely, that real persecution is always of the severe sort. Real persecution has to be severe. (coughs) Now again, part of the reason we may think this way is because the stories of persecution that we tend to see in the magazines and the videos, rightly so, are often about people who've been martyred or beaten, or had their homes burned down, or lost their jobs, or their businesses, or their families because of their allegiance to Jesus. And we see that, and we think to ourselves, well, 
my family members being irritated with me because I won't go along with their dishonesty or my coworkers calling me narrow-minded because I've tried to tell them that there's no salvation except in Jesus, those irritations, those insults really just aren't that big a deal compared to a woman being beaten with a hammer for going to church. And of course, that line of thinking is correct in many senses. We aren't suffering nearly as severely as we could be or as some of our brothers and sisters are. And we recognize that, and it should put a muzzle on any murmuring we're tempted to do in our own culture. But sometimes we may take another step, not just to say we're not suffering, we're not persecuted like they are, but to say that we're not really facing real persecution at all, as though it only counts when it comes in the jumbo package. But again, Jesus won't allow us to go that far here in verses 10 through 12 because did you notice in verse 11 that he didn't just say, blessed are you when people beat you and disown you and take your business away because of me. All those things are true, of course, but they're not what Jesus says. What he actually says includes much milder forms of persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you. And persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So do you see? Insults and false accusations are included in what Jesus says about real persecution. Those things that are more common in our culture are legitimate too. Being mocked by classmates for your faith. Being looked down upon at work because you are upright. Being bad-mouthed by your family, sometimes to your face, maybe sometimes behind your back, because you're committed to God's ways more than to the family's ways. Being slandered by a co-worker in an attempt to discredit your faith. All these things are part and parcel of real persecution. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One, because I don't want you, if you have a faulty view of what persecution really is, to walk out of here tonight saying, well, nobody is going to beat me for my faith. And nobody's going to fire me for doing what's right. And so maybe I'm not a Christian after all. I don't seem to really be suffering. Maybe my testimony just falls woefully short. Now maybe your testimony does need to be better. Probably it does. But not facing the same forms of persecution that you might face if you lived in China is no sure sign that you're not walking with Jesus. Persecution is different in this country, but it is nevertheless real. In fact, it is often exactly the kind of persecution that Jesus speaks about here. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then I also don't want you to have a faulty view of persecution because if you do not see the insults and the false accusations and the little digs and the subtle disadvantages that may be placed upon you because of your faith, if you don't see those as real, then you will miss out on one of those ways in which the Lord really is allowing you to identify with Christ. Now, yes, I know Jesus was mocked and beaten and spat upon and killed, but he was also insulted. And he was also falsely accused, and he was also mocked, and he was also misunderstood and given a hard time by his siblings who did not believe in him, just like some of you. But if you don't see that as really mattering to the Lord, if you don't see these small sufferings of yours 
as identification with the sufferings of Christ, if they aren't real persecution in your mind, then you miss out on a very real form of fellowship with Jesus. So I don't point out that our garden variety persecutions are real. I don't point that out tonight so that we can all bellyache a little louder or so that we can go stand up for our rights somewhere or least of all so that we can try and act like we really know what our brothers and sisters in Syria are going through. None of those things are my aim. But I do point out that our persecutions, however minor, are indeed real so A, that Satan will not have ammunition against us to convince us that maybe our faith isn't real. And so that B, we won't miss out on the fellowship of his sufferings that Jesus really does vouchsafe to us when we are insulted, falsely accused, and so on. So what does real persecution look like? Well, sometimes it does look like lacerations on a back or bruises on a face or flames arising from a church roof, or a body in a coffin, or a family member disowned. But sometimes it might look like this. You're visiting your family for the holidays, and they begin engaging in conversation or maybe watching a movie that is just not godly. And so you excuse yourself, or maybe you even venture to say a word on the side of righteousness, and you're met with anger or with criticism that you're being holier than thou. Or maybe you're criticized behind your back. That's just what Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are you when people insult you because of me. Or maybe you're turning in a final paper for the school semester and the paper is on topic, but it's informed by biblical principles and concepts, which you know are true. And your teacher docks your grade or tries to force you to rewrite the paper and redact the parts that are reflective of your faith, accusing you falsely of being misinformed or bigoted or narrow-minded or what have you. And blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Or maybe you're treated differently at work because your Christian convictions won't allow you to cut corners or to bend truths no matter how it may inflate the company's bottom line. And so your supervisor doesn't really like you. Maybe he makes things difficult for you. Maybe she gives you poor evaluations, not officially, but perhaps really because she's not happy that you stand for righteousness. And it could be a dozen other things. Someone who insults you when you try to share Jesus with them, a friend who turned against you when you started following Christ, a family that criticizes you because you're doing things differently and ordering your priorities in a more godly way than is customary in the family culture. Whatever it may be, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, you shouldn't go looking for these things under every bush. It's not happening to you probably every day, probably not even every week, most of you. And even when it does happen, it doesn't mean that you have a right to murmur, much less that you have a right to boast because you're so godly. We're simply doing what our masters commanded us to do, right? There's no self-congratulation in that. But to the extent that you are about your master's business, and to the extent that you are insulted or falsely accused or unfairly treated because of it, you are identifying in a significant way with the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. 
And we miss out if we only ever expect to identify with him in the big sufferings. So there are two misapprehensions that we've talked about concerning persecution. And they may both be traced at least partially because we're often reading the big persecution stories from somewhere out there. Namely, the misconceptions that, a pers- that persecution is out there somewhere, and then the misconception that real persecution is always of the severe sort. But then there's a third misconception that comes not so much from the stories that we read, but from the fallen nature of our own hearts. <coughs> and that is the misconception that persecution is merely just a curse. Persecution is a curse only on my life. Because, I mean, who wants to be insulted and falsely accused, right? Who wants to be beaten for going to church? No one would choose those things, would they? And they are painful. And when something is painful, and when something happens to us that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, and especially when we can see no immediate earthly silver lining to it, we're prone to think of such things that they are just bad, that they're just a curse, and that we just want to shake loose from them as soon as possible. And persecution fits in that camp so often, doesn't it? When it happens, we sometimes have a hard time grasping what Jesus says here in verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are those who are persecuted? That just doesn't sound right, does it? It certainly doesn't sound very blessed to our natural ears. And even if we add the qualifier that the persecution is for the sake of Jesus, we would still rather just think about something else. And surely this is one reason why we don't sometimes shine for Jesus as we should and why we do so often go with the flow instead of maintaining a righteous stance and why we sometimes don't share the gospel when we have opportunity because we know that opposition may come, that some little form of persecution may come and so often we view such insults and false accusations merely as a curse that we would like to avoid at any cost. And it's true, these things are bad in and of themselves. Persecution is a result of the curse that hangs over the world because of sin. But that is not all that insults and false accusations and hammers and burned churches are. They are a result of the curse, but they're not merely a curse. Because Jesus doesn't say that We are blessed if everything goes well for us and if we never face any difficulties. He says we are blessed if we are insulted and persecuted and lied about for his sake. Those things might not be blessings in themselves, the persecution, the the lies, the insults. They may not be uh, blessings in themselves, but they come with blessings. Indeed, with multiple blessings according to this passage. For instance, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What more could we want than that? Blessed 
are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These same people who are being persecuted are the people who are going to be in heaven someday. Now, we've been saying all along through this series that none of these attitudes and attributes, none of these qualities here in verses 3 through 12 can earn heaven. So our peacemaking doesn't make us sons of God, verse 9, but it demonstrates that we are sons of God. Our purity in verse 8 doesn't enable us to see God, but if we're on our way to see him based on the purity of Jesus, then we ourselves will be growing more pure as well. And the same principle is true here in verse 10. When Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that if you'll just be godly enough such that you suffer persecution, then that persecution will somehow scour away your sins and gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Of course that's not what he's saying. Because in the words of Robert Lowry, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So what does Jesus mean in verse 10 if he's not saying that suffering for his sake merits heaven? Well, he's speaking in these verses about people who are already on their way to heaven, about people who've been washed in his blood. And what he's saying is this, the fact that you are suffering for me, the fact that your righteousness, verse 10, and your love for me, verse 11, have caught the world's disapproving eye is proof that you belong to me and that heaven is your home. If this world was your home, you would do everything in your power to preserve and protect and provide ease for yourself on this earthly pilgrimage. But since you're living for me instead of for this world, well, then it's clear that you belong to me and that heaven is your home. So there is one way in which blessing comes along to you in the same package as persecution. The very fact that you're being persecuted for Jesus and that you're willing to do whatever it is that gets you into such hot water for him is one of the evidences here and now that you really belong to him and that heaven is your home. In other words, your suffering persecution for Christ is one way you're assured that you belong to Christ. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the people who know me. These are the people who are really saved and who are therefore on the way to heaven. There's an assurance in persecution. But then another blessing that can come wrapped in the same gift wrap as persecution is if we can remember from verse 10 that there actually is a heaven at the end of the road and that I will someday leave this suffering and go there. Now that might sound like I'm saying the same thing all over again that I just said, but it's actually slightly different. In the last item, I was saying that from verse 10 that persecution demonstrates that we're going to heaven. It demonstrates that we belong to Jesus and that there is a blessing here and now even simply in having that demonstration, simply in having that reminder in the fact that I'm suffering for him, that I really do belong to Jesus and that I really have chosen heaven over earth. But now I'm saying that in addition to that reassurance here and now that I really do belong to Jesus and that I really am heaven bound is also the blessing that someday I am bound for heaven itself. 
that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that I don't just have assurance now, but I have assurance about heaven later, a shout of joy after a night of weeping. At the end of all this difficulty, we're going to heaven if we belong to Jesus. And that's what this verse reminds us, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted or who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so one of the blessings for those who are persecuted is to read this verse and to know that it will not always be so. The kingdom of heaven is waiting for us at the end of the road and there will be no snide remarks and no slander and no hammers there. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And not only that, but according to verse 12, there will be reward in heaven for those who are persecuted on earth. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven. Now, the reward of heaven itself, the reward of actually getting to be in heaven in the first place, is not bought and can never be bought by your suffering for Jesus. You will reach those eternal shores only because of his suffering for you. But here, Jesus may be indicating in verse 12 that some of our rewards in heaven may indeed be God's way of compensating us for the losses that we incurred in this world on his behalf. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Here is why you can positively rejoice when you're persecuted. Because you say to yourself, God is going to reward this suffering. He will not let these losses be permanent. He'll make this up to me in eternity. This person who thinks that he's harming me is actually just piling up more blessings for me in the future. Great is my reward in heaven for suffering this way for Jesus. And so persecution brings a blessing, not only because of it's, it's part of the evidence that we really do belong to Jesus and that we are going to heaven, but also because it reminds us that there actually is a heaven for us to go to. And that there will be a reward there for all those who have suffered for the name. And then Jesus also says at the end of verse 12 that there's a blessing in persecution persecution because this suffering for Jesus identifies us with our forefathers in the faith. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I suffer, even if it's in small ways, I can understand and identify with and feel a kinship with, for instance, Jeremiah at the bottom of the cistern for speaking God's word. Or even Daniel in the lion's den. Or maybe more close to our kind of suffering I can identify with David, whose holy boldness in the matter of Goliath was slandered by his big brother, and Elijah, whom King Ahab called you troubler of Israel, or the troublemaker, as some versions put it. 
So you're in good company when your family disparages you and when people think you are a troublemaker simply because you're trying to live and speak for Jesus. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And let me close by saying that not only does the persecution against you enable you to identify with the prophets, but in a special way it allows you to identify with the prophet who is also priest and king to his people. There's a reason why Jesus has been called the suffering servant. Insulted, verse 11, check. Falsely accused in the same verse, check. Lectured by his own family, check. Spat upon, check. Mocked, whipped, Beaten, three more checks. Abused by a hammer, even that. And put to death with it in ignobility and shame. All that he might save you and me from our sin. And to whatever extent we get to suffer for him, it's an honor. And not only is it an honor... But to the point of verse 12, whenever we suffer for his sake, whenever we suffer like he did for doing the will of God, we understand him just a little bit better. We identify with him just a little bit more. We sense his heartbeat just a little more palpably. That's what Paul called the fellowship of his sufferings. When we suffer and therefore we know a little bit more of what it was like for Jesus to suffer and we draw nearer to him because of it. So rejoice and be glad when you suffer for Christ. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you and in the same way they persecuted the prophet, Jesus himself. And you have the privilege when you are persecuted for him of knowing just a little better the Lord Jesus and entering a little bit more into the fellowship of his sufferings. And therefore, to think of persecution merely as a curse is all wrong. There is a curse upon this world and persecution is certainly an offshoot of it. But persecution, according to these words in Matthew 5, is also a part of the all things that God is causing to work together for good for his people. So, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.